Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Forbidden Door Review. I'm Adam Wilborn from What Culture, joined by one of the Dadly Boys, Michael Hamlet from What Culture, to review everything that happened on tonight's Forbidden Door <laughs> pay per view between AEW and New Japan. But before we get into it, if you're a fan of this sort of thing, make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling on either iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, for daily wrestling podcasts where we review Raw, SmackDown, NXT, but oh, AEW Dynamite, AEW Rampage, pay per views, premium live events. We have interviews, roundtable discussions, and a round of the week complete with a very good quiz, of course, on wrestle culture. As I said, they're joined by Hamlet to review Forbidden Door. And the review can only start with a summary by the one and only Renee Paquette. This show was uh, very much... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Look, usual caveats and qualifiers are going to apply here, although we are a bit more awake when we deliver them. We've just come off doing the live stream. We've just come off doing what went down. It's a very different way to engage with the show and certainly then to try and do the long-form analytical podcast might be a little insincere because so much of that time is spent, whether it be reading comments, engaging with the people, um, you sucking down a jelly without using the hands or any utensils of any kind, any oh cutlery. Oh, my God. But watching it as much as we can. So with the sound off as well, watching it as much as we can. This felt immediately like well, one of my favorite shows I've ever watched. Immediately like very possibly the wrestling pay-per-view of the year which accounts for certainly my own personal biases sat in the building um, for WrestleMania, night one. Um, that's so night two, but certainly night one. And more importantly, I think, um, than any of my own personal takes, a show that existed, I've said the word clapback on a video, and I'm going to say it again on the podcast, but I'm not that sort of almost feels um, confrontational. Yeah. But certainly a response to a lot of very constructive criticisms of AEW's product of late. This You're welcome, Tony. Like, this felt like a pay-per-view that moved to address those criticisms almost mm. one by one. This had the match quality that a Dynamite or a Rampage typically comes with, but, you know, we've all said it. Are good matches really enough mm. in an era where good matches are no longer premium? There are good matches on every single wrestling show of the week, no matter how good or bad the booking is. The wrestling, the cream rises to the top and the wrestling survives in spite of any kind of booking, whether it be good or bad. So you're looking for more. This had fantastic pacing. This allowed the great moments to breathe. There was some really fantastic intra-match booking on this show. There was some good, uh, you know, and a paper doesn't have to do this, but there was some good salesmanship for the stuff that is still to come. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like all of those things, that the thing that AEW, are the things that AEW has been taking some rightful knocks for of late. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, yes, fair enough, this involved New Japan. So in a way, it was kind of unlocking something with a bit of a cheat code. But nonetheless, this took a build that was on paper, 
and just made you go, ah, when you were watching over and over and over again. And that in itself is an achievement that they deserve a pat on the back for. A lot of pats on the backs and flowers and roses and all that sort of stuff coming for this one. I think. Yeah, I went into this one <clears throat> with sort of mixed feelings. Because like you say, I went in a bit of a spoiled child going, mm. it could be better. You know, yeah. where's Naito on this card or whatever it may mm-hmm. be. Or, you know, I wish they'd booked... You know, just Hangman Page versus Okada rather than making it this four-way or, you know, why yeah. do they do this? But also, I think with some fair criticism of it as well, um, but was so, like, pleasantly surprised, doesn't do it justice, just so blown away by so much that happened here. Many, many memorable moments. Uh, a phenomenal advert uh, for Forbidden Door 2 mm-hmm. where, you know, the prospect of so many unbelievable matches now feel so much more like a reality after we've had this, I don't want to say dry run, but first go round and it'd be such a resounding success. You would just anticipate, right, well, that's in the diary forever now. End of June, every year, we're going to do Forbidden Door and it's going to be a, a, a joyful showcase of not just the amazing talents of AEW, but how they can mesh with New Japan's exceptional roster as well. Yeah, we use... Um, we use uh football or soccer uh, analogies on this podcast quite a lot, and I apologise to any American listeners or indeed any non-football fans, really. But there's one that's always really stuck with me um, as a supporter of a perennial rubbish football team is that uh, every now and then you make it to a cup semi-final and you come so close. You've lived this at least mm-hmm. once, I know that. You come so close, but so far away ultimately, and then the final gets played, and then the winners get um, you know their moment in the sun with the cup. And the reality is... As a losing finalist, you're barely remembered. It's only the winners that remembered it. As a losing semi-finalist, you disappear from view completely apart from in your own sort of mm-hmm. experience of this. The build to Forbidden Door, I think, will forever be remembered as the losing semi-finalist, which is to say, not really remembered at all, because what will be remembered is the glory of the night itself. Yeah. In a year's time, when we're talking about Forbidden Door 2, previewing it and whatnot, we'll remember Forbidden Door 1 as this glorious night where all the things we're about to discuss went down, while giving very little thought to the build itself. The same thing happened, and I'm making this lofty comparison on purpose, with WrestleMania 17. Some of the best matches on that card were set up with almost no time. The best match on the card, in my opinion, the main event for all the marbles, for the big one, the biggest match that WWE could have promoted, Austin versus Rock, was a laborious build up until the very last segment, which is the only one that anybody talks about now, which is the Jim Ross sit-down segment with the two of them. There was nonsense over Deborah. There was stolen finishes. There was all this sort of stuff that just felt so fluffy when you were selling the biggest, the best, you know, the, the biggest match of the era between the two best. This was supposed to be in Forbidden Door, a coming together of these two enormous companies and what they could do. And it never felt anywhere near that in the build. And yet on the night, over and over again, there were matches, there were moments, there were visuals that was just, yes, Mm. this was what all of this was supposed to be. Yes, we didn't need this wrestler or this wrestler. You know, to use an example of an AEW guy and a New Japan guy, for reasons very, very wildly different, a Kenny Omega or a Tetsuya Naito. Yeah. We're nowhere near this card for a variety of different reasons. But it turns out you didn't need them now. Doesn't mean you haven't got them for another day because it was very much a case of hiding what could be shown until the night itself. Yes. Some of that I'm not so sure was strategic, if yeah. I'm honest. Uh, look, I don't want to, like, now I've given them loads of praise, start taking it away drip by drip. But I don't know how much of it was strategic or how much of it was stuff that they arrived at as the time neared. But either way, the show that they've assembled is going to leave so many memories that I think Forbidden Door as a concept has proved itself at the first attempt. And that was so key and so critical to the continual, the continued maintenance of the business working relationship between New Japan and AEW. They may now set away for another 12 months, 
with all politics aside and everybody getting back to their own business. But I feel like they'll have definitely justified the reason to come together again. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Right, let's dive into it then. Uh, On the buy-in, we had four matches in total. Uh, Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi defeated The Factory. Lance Archer beat Nick Comarato. Swerve in our glory got back to winning ways and and unified as a team. I know they've been doing stuff on Dark Animation, but I haven't been watching that. Um, (laughs) They defeated Suzuki Goon. And Max Caster and Gun Club defeated... uh, uh, Yu, Yu, Yuya Yamura and the New Japan LA Dojo, despite the fact it was just Max Caster and Billy Gunn, because Austin Gunn and Colton Gunn ran backstage to try and fight Dan Housen, and it was still a really enjoyable uh, teaming up of Billy and his one of his new sons, <laughs> apparently. Uh, that's what happened on the buy-in. We'll talk about the main card now, though, instead. The sex gods, including Minoru Suzuki, defeated Eddie Kingston, Wheeler Yuta, and... Oh, you know what, it's... I'm really sorry. I'm just really tired. I've completely... Do you remember the sixth member of this match, the third member of Eddie Kingston's team? Shooter! What a team this was, and what a match this was to open the show. Absolutely fantastic. Um, We kind of pitched this, uh, say we, on this podcast, and I sensed this was the case in the collective wrestling hive mind, as something that was ultimately there to be fun and functional, Give people good sing-alongs with the entrance, have some cool Minoru Suzuki moments, and ultimately just sort of be the only real, compared to certainly Moxley and Tanahashi as well, um, the only real sales pitch for Blood and Guts was going to take place in this match here yeah. because obviously you know, you've got so many men involved in the match. This ultimately ended up being so, so much more. A blissful opener wrestled at an absolutely frantic pace. Mm-hmm. I don't recall, again, watching live, I don't recall us ever having a period where things slowed down and the heels just took sort of um, laborious control over things. This never really felt like it was under control. It just constantly moved and moved and moved. Everybody got shine. So the heels all got their moments in the sun to bask in their sort of the awful hatred of the crowd. The crowd were so electrified for this. This was something, so we have to have the sound very low on the stream. But the crowd was something you could see as well as hear. Like the audience just looked up for this throughout mm. the duration of the card. And they were given the best possible start here. Um it was great to see Sammy Guevara back in his element under Chris Jericho's wing. It doesn't say a lot for maybe how things have gone for him outside of that, but he just seemed so much more confident here. He seemed completely back in his element to perform. This has felt like his best night in absolutely ages. Chris Jericho was a perfect heel um, as both like a team captain and a cut-off style guy. Minoru Suzuki, every time he broke something up, he did so tellingly while watching the suffering a bit more first. Yeah. That felt more in character than anything else because Suzuki Yoon and the Jericho Appreciation Society have formed a bit of a marriage of convenience for the benefit of this show, but not really anything that's maybe going to stand the test of time. They very neatly played a video of uh, Chris Jericho putting Shota Ramuno long before he was the shooter in uh, the walls of Jericho during one of his uh, yeah. New Japan matches from a couple of years ago, which added like just a little bit more heat to a match that was already simmering with it because of blood and guts. Eddie Kingston was constantly spoiling for a fight anytime he could get in there and brawl with anyone. He didn't mind how much pain he was forced to endure at the hands of Suzuki. Uh, it was a good night for the shooter. Um, the ice-cold-blooded stare of the shooter. Um, he got well, Mostly. Mostly, mostly. He got a couple of really awesome pacey fire-up moments before ultimately taking another kick in, a Judas effect, a German here and there. Everybody got their shit in. Uh, I was worried it was going to go off the rails slightly with a couple of minutes to go, but they kept the train on the tracks. Uh, It was just super fiery, spunky, 
I don't know. I don't feel longer like... than the main event, according yeah. to Wikipedia. And you know what? There was like there was points where it felt like it had gone long, but I don't mean that as a criticism. Mm-hmm. It was just everybody getting lots and lots of time to have a load of fun with it. A proper, proper, memorable opener from something that felt like again in the build, like it was excess, like it was flabby, like it was fatty. Not that at all in action. And that from the word go, from the moment Jericho went, oh, Eddie Kingston's not starting, I'll start. Yeah. And then Wheeler, you thought he looked like he was going to hit him with 10 flipping suplexes to start with. Yeah, that was it. Like, that was right from the off as well. Yeah. You know, that, it just, it set the tone completely. for the, And indeed, this match set the tone for the show. And just in case we forget it later, the reason why I said Shio didn't have the best of nights, aside from, yeah, like you say, firing up, then getting hit with a Judas effect to mm. lose the match for his team, he later on got hit with a fireball. Yeah. Well, uh, Chris Jericho's a weirdo, isn't he? Lone back to third Nothing but respect. Nothing but respect. There was it. Um, the three of them as well. It was uh, Daddy Magic, Cool Hanange, and Chris Jericho rounding on a single-year shooter in the back. So I don't know. I think this has been a thing for a while, but I, n- I didn't notice it until tonight that Cool Hanange has a not a flick knife, but a flick comb. A flick comb. Yeah. Like so he opens it out. And it's in a comb. And he's he like, hey, threatens nothing somebody but respect. With it. Yeah. Threatens somebody with it, but it's still just a comb and he comes oh, his hair back. so much. Yeah. Uh, but yes, uh, so that means they get the advantage for mm, Blood Guts yeah. coming up on Wednesday, which we'll be previewing on the Dynamite preview, of course. <laughs> then it was time for the winner-take-all three-way uh, for all the tag titles, Ring of Honor Tag Team Championships and the IWGP Tag Team Championships uh, held by United Empire and FTR, respectively, even though it's got them two the wrong way around. And Rapongi Vice was involved in it as well. This sort of went the way we expected in terms of a result, but not in terms of the match, and uh, particularly with the disappearance, the worrying initially disappearance of Dax Harwood. Yeah, this was really, really impressively laid out in hindsight, and indeed inexperienced. The uh, the structure of this card, which I just want to pay more uh, kudos to whoever was involved in this, certainly um, followed the pattern of New Japan more than AEW in terms of the fact we had a big load of multi-man matches, a lot of clustery stuff, and then we had more singles matches and big title matches, big moment matches later on as the card progressed. And this was definitely one that we'd worried aloud was maybe going to drown amongst yeah. some of the other flashier affairs. And instead, they used um, a bit of an old trick and one that I think we wouldn't have expected. It appeared that Dax had suffered an injury fairly early on. Brilliantly, they didn't really allow much focus on it. There was a very quick camera cut to Dax getting taken off to the back and Dash looking shoot concerned. Really good acting in his part, it would seem. Um, Because then the match played out more with the other two teams Mm -hmm. and Dash having to to basically cash. Cash, sorry, I keep saying Dash. Cash having to keep FTR alive within the context yeah. of the match while Dax was gone because, of course, they could have lost the belts without being involved in the fall as well as not being able to win them. So you had this match playing out while everybody nervously waited for what they'd hoped was a work, which was Dax heroically returned to save the day, which he did, came in, made the hot tag. Uh, FTR were able to cling on. He had the pink and black tape Taping that shoulder, which cannot have been an accident, can it? It just cannot have been. Um, You've only got pink and black tape. Well, I suppose that'll have to do. That'll just have to do. Um, And then even them winning in the way that they did, um, just, it was, was it Rocky Romero? Yeah, I believe so. Of course it was Rocky Romero. Slipping effortlessly, like gracefully almost, into a big rig that they were kind of able to pull out of nowhere. There was one um, blind tag that um, Dash made... uh, I'm so tired. Cash made before this, where he held, there was setting up like a suplex or uh, something in the corner, and he held a tag rope and then tagged Dax's boot mm. to get back in the ring just to try and be in there to score the fall. It was good desperation from FTR, but the right result and the right winners, and it just felt really good to see them with all the belts. I saw a side-by-side on Twitter of a, um, it was the shot of them shaving each other's backs while 
what, like what they used oh, to do yeah. by the shower. And uh, those days are gone now. They're just loaded oh, with all goodness. this gold. Yeah, and uh, on a show with you know some some hard hitting moments and some visceral moments, John Moxley in the main event. We will mm. get to. Uh, for me, uh, a moment that'll live long in the memory, and that was uh, the, the bum stuff with Cash Wheeler. Oh my god. No, my God. So after three long years, the true value of those corner post cameras was finally explored as uh, Great O'Khan's arse-based offense was zeroed in on by these cameras until uh, he had no choice but to punch his way out by doing a series of bum punches that were so rapid fire that as the arse moved, only his own head remained. And he started, he'd sent fist and fire so quickly that three or four uncorked ones were just in his own temples. Yeah, a lot of people are going to say after this show, oh, that spot with the corner camera and Will Ospreay really does stick with me. And I'll be like, no, Great O'Conn's arse. Bums. Great O'Conn's bum. Uh, and I, I mentioned this earlier on what went down. I feel I should mention it now before I forget it. But Sige talked a lot about in the build of how they're going to structure this show in terms of mm. are they going to go for a more sort of AW or WWE, I think it's fair to say, structure of, you know, sort of scattering the big matches across yeah. the card or the New Japan you know, and I'm not saying that the earlier matches weren't big matches, but in terms of um, stakes and, and things like that, I think this this show just built and built and built and in terms of crowd reaction, just peaked perfectly. Yeah, um, I think the, the card probably needed it as well. Like, you can't underestimate how important the structure is to one of making the all-time great shows. It, it, well, it elevates them from being good to great, and it's a fan experience, but certainly from an AW point of view. Um, we've said before, it's length of the shows is... It's sometimes a problem, but then when you look at the match times, you see that, oh, it's coming under four hours, or this only went 19, or whatever. But how you structure those matches has been such a, I think, an undervalued element of these AEW mm-hmm. shows. I really hope it's something they take forward, because they just absolutely nailed this. Uh, right, let's talk next about the Atlantic Channel, all Atlantic Channel, Black, Black and Miro, and, and Clark, Clark Corners. Corners. I feel bad. Because well, Clark Connors now, yeah. was just was just so well booked in this match in mm. terms of they knew what they were getting with him and, yeah. and it, you know that's no no fault of, of Clark Connors he's you know a very talented guy but when you're told Tomohiro Ishii is going to be in the match and then unfortunately he has to drop out because of injury and you replace him quite rightly with the guy who he defeated in the qualifier yep. but he's someone who I think a lot of people even to a certain extent the, the more dedicated fans don't really know who it is, Mm -hmm. it's going to feel like a letdown. And yet in this, not talking to you, love, um, (laughs) in this match, not only did he get a moment to shine and put Miro through a table, he got a spot where for a split second, you and I thought, are they going to put the title on him? Um, And then everything, and that was in a match where the result didn't go the way we anticipated either. Yeah, I mean, this was just agented to perfection, this whole thing. In a way that, obviously in a way that is different how it would have been with Ishii, they used um, the New Japan representative, I guess, in Clark Connors as something of an X factor. You kind of knew that a lot of the match was going to be structured around the scintillating exchanges between Pac and Malachi Black. And of course they were because they're just, you know, they're there to be luxuriated in mm-hmm. ultimately, aren't they? Um, and of course, Miro looking at any point to assert his dominance and indeed win the belt and finally win that singles title that we imagined he would, that he, he fell short on and a little bit more of that in a second. But yeah, the the teases of a, a Clark Connors unlikely victory and the, the manner of, you know, like fans don't know Clark Connors, but they know they love table spots. So giving him that specifically over Miro and having Miro be the one guy that you were certain was going to win and then have him 
theoretically be taken out of the match completely by Connors mm-hmm. as this X factor was really quite inspired because he was the one guy that none of them could have prepared for. So if you throw in spots like that, then you see what his value really is. We were able to see his finisher, which again got that pretty exhilarating two count. And then when Pack got the victory, I think we'd been so disarmed by what Connors could offer and the, the sudden feeling of, oh, this couldn't go anywhere, that you were taken out of. Like I initially was quite sort of surprised. At, like Pack's amazing of course, and worthy of a singles title. And he's been in AEW since the beginning, and it's genuinely lovely to see him win one. But I was so like unsure who was going to win at this point that I think I would have responded with a kind of, oh my God, to any of them. And considering I was so sure in the way that it was going to be Miro, I think it did a really good job of using the work not just to do flashy stuff for flashy stuff's sake, but to take you on the ride, mm. to make you think that, oh, actually, if it could be Connors, it could be any of them. And Miro's, well, the particular game over false finish where Miro took the toxic juice of Malachi Black, that moment of realising that Miro could be out of this, blowing it wide open again, I think I like, added quite a nice um, a nice sense of uncertainty to the, the closing couple of minutes. And Miro tortured Pac before, before that with the game over. Yeah, wanting him to suffer from you know, the, the perceived crimes that he committed against him. Right, let's talk dudes with attitudes. Darby Allen, Sting and Shingo. Versus Bullet Club, um, obviously there was issues with this over the weekend. Mm. Uh, Takahashi had a fever, yeah. I believe. He was taken out of the match and Hikaleo was just made sort of a corner man for the team. So instead it was Matt and Nick Jackson and El Fantasmo. And Sting never fails to surprise me still to this day. You wonder, you know, um, there were so many injuries on this show that, you know, you think about the, the cursed shows. There was the Great American Bash, you know, six or seven or six, I think. Yeah, or six. Where the elevated liver enzymes was there, the famous oh, yeah. one at the time. That was one of the big ones. And then, of course, the um, the TLC card with the mumps and the other sort of fevers and the illnesses. You know, what you get from those, like, strange memories. Some some terrible, like the great Carly not even being able to work the first ever Punjabi prison match. Some amazing, like her angle in the shield. You know, I sort of think that losing Hiromi Takahashi, we'll never know what we didn't get from that. I'll tell you what we didn't get, and that's a crow carrying a cat away. But well, yeah. exactly. We didn't get that. Maybe that's what we got for Forbidden Door 2. Maybe that's why they took him off the show. Maybe they heard our booking and went, well, we can't book anything as good as that. Say so he's got a fever. Yeah, we can't get the animals this weekend, so we'll do it another year, yeah. Um, but instead, you get kind of little moments of over-delivering to ensure that people aren't watching this thinking, oh, I wish this had been the eight-man. Yeah. Sting flying off the ramp, uh, like off the stage, onto the ramp, onto Bullet Club, before the match has even kicked off proper, is the sort of perfect way to illustrate that point. You have a match that just where it starts in the aisle because a 63-year-old man has jumped from about 12 foot in the air onto four guys. At this point, you're not stopping and going, oh, I wish that the people I wanted were in it were in it. You just, you wow. Yeah. You're, you're completely brought into it. And whether that spot was always going to happen or it was something they thought they wanted to enhance, you know, create a bit of added value, I don't know. But from there... Just the quality of this was never, ever in doubt. Uh, the books were on amazing form, getting to be like Bullet Club heads again for the night. Everything they did was measured to perfection. Some of Matt and Nick's looks to the cameras. Off the tiniest bit of offense, the backflip back rakes were unbelievable. Like, what a bunch of arses. There was a, like, I think before one of the back rakes, there was about 300 suckets, which is exactly what yeah. you would expect. Matt Jackson was loving life. Um, Nick, as we could call it, like found a camera on the floor after like one of the young books, like only early aerial assaults because they were mainly just doing heel stuff. Um, 
El Fantasma seemed to be having the time of his life out there. All the baby faces got everything. Shingo got shine at the end. So his it was almost like you were um you were being made to wait to see. I know you'd said that this was gonna be your first look at Shingo, and he got in, he kicked oh. bit, he got in, he kicks a bit of ass, but then he was like made to wait to do the really good stuff. And once he got the really good stuff, people were gonna die out there because he was just he's he's just got this incredible engine. He's got super pace, but he's also got awesome power and he's yeah. got he's devastating, this array of devastating power moves with which obviously Bullet Club were made to suffer. This was just a a bit of a dream. It wasn't, ultimately. The card was so good that I was looking to this to be the thing that almost, like, it stole the show, but it didn't have a hard job of doing it. Mm -hmm. In the end, it was just one of several really, really fun and fantastic matches. But that's not a criticism. It was the old classic tale of you scratch my back, I'll tweet your nipples. You know, that's that was the thing. I keep forgetting when we were, when we talk about this match. Nipple stuff. I did not have nipple stuff on my AW bingo card. Uh, this bingo card no selling the double, uh, double super kicks as well. Oh, yes. This bingo card, which at this point must be about 12 pages long, uh, because they've added so many things that you come to expect from an AW pay-per-view. You like the uh, no-sell and nipple stuff, though? The no-sell one. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, the fact that they continue to find new ways of making you jump off your chair and scream and shout with that no-sell. Like, what's he done now? So he's no-sold a super kick party and going through a table. Yes. In recent memory. And there has been more. Maybe a chair shot in there as yeah. well. It's the best. All this stuff is the best. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Then we got the AW Women's World title match. It was Tony Storm challenging Thunder Rosa. Um, and I think a lot of people went into this match assuming 
that was going to get a title switch here. Not the case, but a bloody enjoyable um, way of doing it. And I say this after every goddamn AEW pay-per-view. Maybe now this will be the catalyst for them to realise what they've got in the women's division. Because yet again, a story that's built on nothing more than, oh, you've picked up my title, but it's my title. So don't you touch it because it's not your title yet. It's my title. They went out and had a banger. Thunder Rosa looked amazing. More of this and just a bloody mention on Dynamite wouldn't go amiss. Yeah, I, I sort of worry that I'll be coming across just patronising it if I say, oh, well done. But they managed to follow that that frenzied uh, trios match and the other stuff that come before on the card. But in all seriousness, uh, well done that you follow that. Because not just, it's it's nothing to do with um, the woman's title not being all that important in AEW. It's to do with the fact that this match wasn't tracked like it was a big deal either. Yeah. You'd have them, as you say, like doing a bit of belt staring here and there. But there wasn't any sort of great view. What? They were basically competing to see who could beat Marina Shafir the best. Yes. That was the build pretty much. Tony Storm winning a, a number one contenders match notwithstanding. And yeah, a hard-hitting little pocket rocket ripper of a match this was. They just looked like they really wanted to hurt each other and put each other down for the win as well. Like, started off very tentatively, which is you know how a, a wrestling match, how a title fight should, I guess. But then just built and built and built into the two of them, having to use the biggest and most dangerous-looking stuff. Head drops, you know, like lobbing bombs with the strikes. It was everything that... Basically, it was everything that sometimes wrestlers in a badly booked division have to do to get. This was a premium live event banger. That's what this was. Those WWE matches where the stories are so often crap until the wrestlers are just left to wrestle one Sunday a month. That was this. And you were drawn in because the quality of the work was so good that you'd be insulting to it if you weren't. And I, I love this. I love the bones of this match. Thunder Rose's, I, like I said this on What Went Down, if you watch it on the YouTube channel, it was Thunder Rose's, simultaneously Thunder Rose's best title match and Tony Storm's best match in AEW. Mm-hmm. And what a perfect time for it to come on a premium live event, on a pay-per-view, excuse me, um, for all the marbles, for all the title. We joke, um, but it's all very sardonic about it being followed up on Dynamite because it was this exact thing that Thunder Rosa had gone on record to say that she wasn't best pleased about. Uh, I hope this is the start of something better. For everybody involved, really. I hope that whoever Thunder Rosa's next contender gets more. I hope that we don't have a match plus Thunder Rosa in an interrupted pull-apart with her opponent and a Jade Cargill promo all within the same 16 minutes of an episode of Dynamite. Only when everything is permitted to blossom does it feel like new things can grow from underneath. Yeah, and there was some great looks on this show from uh, the Ash Boys doing the uh, Shawn Michaels aesthetic mm. to Moxley in white camo. I've got to give it to to Thunder Rosa, though. I thought she looked amazing, which is the real moment she came out. Her gear, her headdress thing, yep. her face paint. I know she's done it a lot. It just worked really well. It looked amazing. And then as the match went on, and it faded and, and washed away with all the sweat. And she was just left with, like, this skull... Eye socket thing. It looked like a like face a, had gone, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, was, look, it looked sensational. I really, really like that. Uh, right, let's talk next about this weird IWGP US title match because you and I were kind of still a bit clueless on this watching the stream where they had to explain that, yeah, Osprey is the champion, but he's not wearing that. He's wearing a different belt, a Rev Pro belt, but mm-hmm. he is the champion, but he's not got the title physically because... Juice Robinson's got that, and he's sat up in the stands and what have you. Mm. But it's still on the line here against Orange Cassidy. So there was that, and then there was the thing that happened after the match. Let's let's do the match first, because this was a match, one of the few ones on this card, that in terms of uh, the anticipation, 
on just on paper, these two people written down together, you know, Tanashi Moxley is, is what it is, and the, mm. the four-way for the IWGP World Heavyweight title, you knew was going to be great. But from the moment someone whispered Osprey versus Orange Cassidy, people had high hopes, and they managed to meet those hopes and, and more than over-deliver too. Absolutely, yeah. Um, an over-delivery, and I just, it's... Really hard for a Will Ospreay and an Orange Cassidy, to be fair, to over-deliver because the expectations are always set so high to begin with. What we thought we might get over the course of an entire match was, in fact, mostly bottled to what felt like about the opening three or four minutes. Um, the Orange Cassidy fake-outs, the Will Ospreay gradually losing his patience, and then you get the first sort of, in, you know, high-octane exchanges between the two off the back of that. They kind of wrapped mm. most of that within five minutes. They mm. revisited it really smartly towards the end when Osprey had had the heat on uh, Orange Cassidy for a long time. But a lot of that stuff they'd done early. And to graduate the... I just thought the inspired touch to graduate the uh, the sort of the little kicks, the light, feather-like kicks. A water kicks, you were saying. Well, right? from... So you have the original kicks, which Osprey is ready and expecting, and he's like, I'm not going to... Yes. I'm not, bego- not going to be gotten to by this nonsense. We're going to fight. And then... Orange Cassidy to instead do the feather-like Kawada kicks, only for Osprey to think, does he think I'm stupid or something? And then Cassidy to unload on him for real with the real ones was a great way to mm. sort of escalate and expedite the Orange Cassidy shtick. And again, like, find a brilliant way, as they always do when it counts, to build it into the body of a match. Osprey was exceptional here. Really, really good here. Was in the right place for absolutely everything. Um Superb working on offense, but equally really, really good at showing just enough ass to the Cassidy character that he then put over the physical onslaught of when Cassidy does the real stuff, yeah. does the stuff that actually hurts. So, like, a kind of faultless performance from both here. And probably, whilst not, like, a five-star... I wouldn't enter this as a five-star classic and in the pantheon of Osprey's all-timers. This was probably the absolute best version of the best match they could have. And it probably will be the first match I go back and watch tomorrow, actually. About yeah, it. it has that vibe about, I'm going to watch this whole show again. Yeah. I'm, I'm that buzzed on it, but I, I know what you mean. It's got that sort of vibe where there's a lot of stuff when you're watching it without sound that you'd like to get the, the full sensory experience of, uh, and indeed the stuff that when you're, you're watching it in one go and it's a long show, you kind of, there's bits you forget. I can't wait to be surprised again by the bits I've forgotten. Orange Cassidy kicking out the Hidden Blade was special as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, a, a, another moment on a, a show where we talked a lot about it being predictable, and I guess most of the results went the way we thought they would. It's always just about finding the 1% of doubt, and they absolutely located it with that. Yeah, uh, Will Ospreay retaining, though, in the end. Hey, what was the name of this finisher? His new one? Uh, so, no, he used um, the Stormbreaker. Oh, the new one, but yeah. The- Stormbreaker, which is something that is typically, like, nobody kicks out of that, but Orange Cassidy had already absorbed um, a hidden blade by then. And an Oscar. And an Oscar, yeah. Yeah. Um, so post match, Aussie Open, who had been ringside and been taken out by Orange Cassidy, they get in there at the uh, behest of, of Will Ospreay and they beat up Orange Cassidy, they try and rip off his pockets. And JL says, I'm just getting no dreams. Brand no dreams, problem solved. Brilliant. Um, and then you get uh, some of the best friends coming out to try and make the save, and, and Ospreay and his goons take care of them. And then who should make the save? Michael Sidgwick will be very happy about this. <laughs> yeah, That's mate. not me being very, t- very tired. I was calling you the wrong name. Michael Hamflit, you leapt out of your chair when this man appeared. Yeah, oh my God. So me and the rest of the uh, United Centre. So we, again, you can't always hear the music. 
So the camera lingered on the fans for a long time. Like, ah. popping huge. And I was like, who's this, who's this, who's this? And then when it turns to the ramp and it reveals Katsuyori Shibata looking ripped and jacked and in his shorts ready to go. As he did, he came down there, just beat the f***ing shit. I am sorry, Wilborn, I know it's late. Out of Osprey and Aussie Open and how cathartic was it to see... Like, we've, we've covered this across various uh, podcasts and videos and the like before, but this was a man that looked like he was kind of done after a, a brutal headshot against them, a headbutt war where the blood trickled down and he was, you know, very nearly in very serious bother and had to retire. So we thought, came back a year later just to say, I am alive. And even then we thought, you know, never let this man absorb a blow again in his life. But gradually he's done more and more to the extent where he worked a technical exhibition against Zack Sabre Jr. unannounced earlier this year that further teased a possible return. This was just all physical, all awesome. Osprey took some brutal shots from here. You know, he saw the, the kicks, the punches, the drop kicks, the lot. Everything you could have wanted in a short burst as a surprise. And again, more of the Forbidden Door magic after the fact because you want to see New Japan and uh, AEW wrestlers interacting with one another in ways that it gets to be a little bit of me. A little bit of you. So we've had a little bit with me with Shabbat absolutely battering uh, the heels and then a little bit of you wearing the orange Cassidy shades and doing the sort of laissez-faire cool look. There was some awesome... He was sat on the ring long enough for everybody to get their stills, wasn't he? Like, AEW, for a change, lingered on it too. It wasn't, now we go to the back or now we go to the next match. It was, let's just watch Shabbat mug a little bit. He did miss his first shot on Carl Fletcher. Inexplicably cut into the crowd or whatever it was. Good catch on that. But I really appreciate him sat on the apron after yeah. the fact, looking down the lens of the uh, the aviators and just ha- like you got the beauty shot, you got to revel in the moment. Everybody did. It was like one of the coolest moments of a really cool show. Just don't I, I, I believe that the crowd are popping. Yeah. You can show me afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Ah, uh, yeah. That's t- there's always a bit too WWE much. WWE and AEW just really guilty of that. But yeah, Shibata was, was a hell of a... I can't yeah. wait to hear Sidge's reaction to that. Oh, yeah. He'll have been squealing at home, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, right, then it was time for Zack Sabre Jr., speaking of technical classics, mm. uh, against whoever is decided as Brian Danielson's mystery replacement, not just for Forbidden Door, but also for Blood and Guts. Hell of a lot of speculation about it over the weekend. Johnny Gargano literally having to post himself on a plane leaving Chicago to try and dispel <laughs> certain rumours involving him. But it, he uh, needn't have bothered because in the end it was the guy we all anticipated and hoped it was going to be, the former Cesaro, the uh, now but also also former, because mm. it's not a new name for him, Claudio Castagnoli. Um, huge baby. Huge baby. And uh, yeah, he, he can still give. He can still give. Cesaro. Unbelievable. Really, really great stuff, this. Um, like, up there with the best Cesaro singles match in years and years and years, obviously, because he just didn't have the opportunity to have that many, like, bona fide classics in WWE. Um, a great Zack Sabre Jr. match, if oddly not even the best of its kind. You know, there's more that Zack Sabre Jr. can do, but what they played with here, at least this is what I discerned without... Um, you know, that Kevin Kelly's typical insightful commentary, or I think mm-hmm. maybe Jim Ross was on the desk, by I don't know, or Excalibur's, was Zach took a long time to be able to get his claws in uh, um, Claudio because he'd not been able to prepare for him. You know, so he was basically out-muscled and outgunned within the first 10 seconds. He, um, it's going to take some getting used to not saying Cesaro. Castanelli mm. ran like full sprint at Zach, hit the uppercut, almost pinned him with the yeah. neutralizer, wasn't it? So he was nearly done and dusted within the first... 30 seconds, and then had to regroup. And this constantly kept happening to him. Every time he thought he had him, he finally grabbed a hold. He finally started to weaken him. He weakened a leg. He weakened an arm. And then all of a sudden, 
boom, bang. It was this perfect way, this match, agented brilliantly as it was, to highlight that, yes, he is a technical marvel, but, yes, also he is freakishly strong. Yes, he has got a bit of a violent side. Yes, his size can pose a problem of smaller men. This was this perfect one-night advertisement for all these things can do. All Sorry, all the things that he can do. And yet another reminder of how we weren't permitted to always see them. Mm. It's so odd. Like, I don't, I don't want every time uh, a wrestler comes, we need to probably get away from WWE guy, especially because the guy is out there being called Claudio Casagnoli, a name he was never called in WWE. Mm-hmm. So they've literally not signed a WWE. This could be like Punk saying, I left professional wrestling mm-hmm. in 2005. Well, maybe Claudio can say the same thing, and now he's just returned to it. Because you got this stunning advert of what a hybrid guy that he is, and yet the little flashes of Zack Sabre Jr. were just inspired, whether it was him being a prick and calling him Baldio and slapping him about the head and constantly trying to get under his skin, trying to neg him a little bit into making a mistake, which he did not because he was just too switched on for the night, too switched on for the fight. With the sharpshooter, though, that was unbelievable. Oh, that little nip and catch that he did, which, again, was one of the only points where you were like, oh, from some of Zach's technical wizardry. Got a little bit more of it later on, but I still think more of that is to come on another day, on another match. This wasn't really the match for it. Ultimately, it was surprises tend to win, and it was more about the surprise. Um like a really, really lovely bit of business. Brian Danielson said he had a guy that was the perfect technical wrestler for Sunday and the perfect guy for Wednesday's bloodbath. And I think by the end of the night, they did a very effective job of showing that. Yeah, it wouldn't be the last we saw of him. And, that, no. and the only thing I was left after this match feeling was, oh, I wish we'd see more of that swing because his arm gave out. And uh, yeah, they know. More of that they know to what come. Doing. Then it was a four-way for the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship. Jay White defending against uh, Hangman Page. Uh, Adam Cole and Kazuchika Okada, uh, a holy sh- champ before this match even started, told you all you needed to know. It is a match that is probably going to be overshadowed more by the finish than the match itself, which is a shame because there was some amazing, unforgettable spots in here as well. Yeah, this was quietly trending to being pretty special, I think, before it ended. If not mega prematurely, certainly anti with something of an anticlimax. Mm. Um, I say not prematurely because that you did feel there was a little bit to come, but not much. You know, it wasn't like it happened within the first five minutes. And, oh, this match has come to an unexpected stop. We still had the better fat end of 20 minutes, surely, I think, on this one before. Jay White covered Adam Cole opportunistically when it appeared that Cole had picked up some sort of injury. It was one of the things where the finish, had it have been, had Cole been concussed or knocked silly or whatever's ever happened by a rainmaker, this would have looked like the finish. Yes. So... Let's say Cole takes a move, Jay White slips in, hits that person with the Blade Runner, and then opportunistically pins Adam Cole. You would have absolutely took that out of the finish. But the fact that Cole just seemed completely out of it left everybody with that more worrying tone that you get sometimes with yeah. the film. Oh, is, is he okay? This this clearly isn't right. Jay White, the look on Jay White's face said that this didn't quite feel right. Adam Cole initially had to be helped out of the match. Commentators were quick to move to say that he did at least leave under his own steam. So yeah. whatever it is, it's hopefully something that, you know, you'll be able to recover from. But it was a slightly unsettling scene, I think, at the end there when all the officials swamped the corner of the ring as Jay White held the belt up. Otherwise, though, as I say, this was really well thought through. It didn't... 
the falling apart of the Adam Cole J White relationship didn't feel like a cliched pipeline no, no, no. thing. They were good at playing spoiler to the thing that fans wanted to see, which was Okada and Page. Uh, so we had that exchange broken up a couple of times before we finally got it. But when we did got it, oh my god, mm. what a match that will eventually be! That singles match between the two. Um, you were right, I think, to highlight basically that every single singles combination in this showed something that made you want to see more of it. Yeah, which is sort of ideal from a four-way. Um, Okada got to be a nice greatest hits package of Okada for one night only in a four-way. But again, Forbidden Door 2, tons on the table because you haven't done an Okada singles match. Are we, as a media, either, like, were we right to collectively like, eh, this bill hasn't been great, but then in the fullness of time be like, Jesus Christ, they sold absolutely nothing and delivered an all-timer show. What are they going to do when they've actually got stuff to sell? Like, the more I think about this card and what they didn't offer you, the more it just feels inspired that they're left on the table. I, I feel like I'm being too generous saying it, but there was yeah, so I think much that left on the table. I think we would have said it in advance. People would have said we're being too biased towards them. Yeah, but then when you look at Forbidden Door yeah. 2, you could, there's like six, seven singles matches that they didn't even go near for this show. And you just think, wow, that's amazing that there's so much that they could still go to. Like, this was so far away from a dream card. The original dream card still remains. And you've got that over and over and over again. Sorry, I'm getting off path, but no, I just, no, no. it's going to stick with me for a little bit, trying to work out how much of it was <laughs> by design and how much was just a bit unfocused and messy. This was this was a really great match that obviously could have been better with the planned finish. But Talking to you, love, just sent me some information about Western Australia. You know, she's, she's worked as hard as you have tonight. It's been a long time. <laughs> um, yeah, like the the exchange between all the individual men was great. The cutoffs with when the heels when Adam Cole did turn with a backstabber of all things wasn't. Um, it felt organic, you know. It didn't feel fake. And the right, the friends. Are, it's now time for the friends to turn or anything like that. There wasn't a lot of one guy rests on the outside, which I like because it's kind of a lazy element of the formula now at this point. Um, I it just. Just when it was getting up there and like it was finally starting to feel a bit more exhilarating rather than just being a great wrestling match, it was cut off short. Still very good, though. Yeah, I'm not sure if they were going to do something post-match because you had Young Bucks and Kyle O'Reilly yeah. coming down to the ring, but then obviously Adam Cole. We wish him well in his recovery. Do you know what? There's a really lovely detail there that the camera almost missed. The Young Bucks appeared to be staring over. So Adam Cole is obviously being tended to by medics, and um, Kyle O'Reilly and the Young Bucks come out. Kyle O'Reilly immediately expressed concern for Adam Cole. He was expecting the Young Bucks... Shared more than a long glance with uh, Hangman Adam Page mm. in the other corner, but Kyle O'Reilly very sort of like snappily, whoa, he's our guy. And then the camera's cut away again. So it was whether or not A, you weren't meant to see it because this is a shoot injury and Cole's hurt, or B, that was the planned angle. Cole selling something, and you were supposed to see just a little bit, but not a lot of, oh man, like the elite are going to, they're going to figure the revolution. This out. Did I just see that sort of moment again? Yeah, already? like down, going down the line here. Like Page, Omega, and the books. I'm clasping my hands back together and the mm. fingers are locking. Main event time then. Hiroshi Tanahashi versus John Moxley for the interim AEW World Championship. A lot of pressure on this thing, it's fair to say. Yeah, To definitely. close out this show. Mm-hmm. They saw that pressure and bled all over it, didn't oh, they? Oh, man, they just absolutely nailed this. This was so... It was in the commentary where they referenced a um, a match that had, well, relied on plunder ultimately between um, Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kenta from earlier this year. I liked it. It was wacky, but it wasn't to everybody's taste. There was big ladders and big weapons and all this stuff. And on commentary, crucially, Tanahashi had said, I'm glad to have won. 
I hated the match. Yes. You know, he was presented as a wrestling purist that didn't want to get dragged into a Blackpool Combat style, Blackpool Combat Club style bloodbath. Like, he didn't want to be just another Wheeler Uter in the bloody clutches of John Moxley, did Tanahashi. He did, I look at that face. Oh, man. Like, a gorgeous. I wanted to destroy something beautiful. A gorgeous man you don't wish to taint, but there he is. Um, he got the blood in his hair. Um, Hang on. Oh, my God. And I bet she was. Yeah. <laughs> like, she's the lucky one that gets to be married to him. Um, yeah, this just built and... Oh, I meant Tanahashi, but yeah, Moxley was good too. Yeah, this just built and built and built and built so fantastically well. Moxley was never really... If you reflect upon the match now, there, were f- there weren't really many points where Moxley wasn't in control. Mm-hmm. Tanahashi, like, pulled off a couple of... Like, he peeled off a couple of dragon screws, and there was definitely a point where he was trying to weaken Moxley's leg. But it was always him fighting from underneath. And that only really served for one key point of the match, which was the final third, when Moxley decided to kind of be a bit of a heel. So he tried to out-wrestle the ace, and it'd, he'd out-wrestled him, but it wasn't in a way that he was going to defeat him. The out-wrestling was not going to take him to the title. It wasn't going to take him to was, the glory of the victory. Was this the match? I'm really tired, so apologies if I've got this confused with another one. Was this the match with the one kick out? Yeah, yeah. Well, deployed, uh, one count kick out, I mean, not just there was one kick out. Yeah, deployed magnificently. Um, I think there was a couple, actually, that used the one count. From memory. But I distinctly remember it. People will correct us if we've got that one wrong. But, yeah, Tanahashi, the point being, Tanahashi would not go down and stay down and make life easy for Moxley. So at that point, Moxley starts getting a bit nastier, a bit crueler. Um, So every time Tanahashi fights back is more exhilarating than the last. And then Moxley is all of a sudden bleeding because his tank has run on empty too. And blood, as we know... sling blade? Oh, man. As we know with AEW at this point... um, they use blood as a way to signify that somebody is all out of gas. So Moxley's then getting desperate, and everything we're seeing from him is pure desperation. But he's just got a bit more youth on his side. He's got a bit more, bit, a bit fewer, a bit fewer. I am so tired. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's got fewer miles on the clock than Tanahashi at this point. Not by many, but just a few more. He's played a few less games of Bapit. Um, yeah. So they, uh, they run and run and run and run. And in the end, the sequence and the stretch where Moxley beats him is the sort of thing where they do this basically stay as far away from the um, finisher, kick out, big move, big bomb, swapping back and forth, NXT main event style. I'm not talking about Tony D'Angelo and Carmelo Hayes. I'm talking about a black and gold style yes. main event. Um, the takeover main events of old where you would just see everything but the kitchen sink thrown at one another until one one lands the luckiest first, and you get that win. Instead, this was just Moxley being like, right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and now there's no stopping you. There was a point where he elbowed him that many times. Referees, sorry, fans, announcers, and us watching were just saying, call it off, call it off. Like, there's suddenly, like, Tan actually saw it with his eyes. Yeah. There was absolutely nobody home. He'd taken elbow after elbow after elbow, and he just would not give up, and the referee was just seeing just enough in him that he wouldn't call it off. So Moxley transitions into a bulldog choke, and he's like, oh, I'll just choke you out instead. <laughs> and Tanashi will not submit. He's the ace. He's too bold and brave to submit into such a thing. So Moxley says... Go ace, chant. Go, go ace, chant. As in the submission, as Moxley is the one bleeding, but there is a go ace, chant for Tanahashi to just cling on. He survived the strikes. He survived the submission. So Moxley transitions out. That drives his head into the goddamn canvas. Leaves him a wreck for three. And then Moxley, having won the match generates cheers because he wants to extend a handshake because he knows that he's been in a fight. To beat the ace, he's basically had to become one, and he knows he's been in a fight before. Obviously, the Jericho Appreciation Society ruined the lovely moment. Yeah, great to see Daniel Garcia, first of all. Screaming in Tanahashi's face. 
lovely spot. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they come down, they attack, um, and then you get Eddie Kingston obviously running down to make the save, and then all the members of Jericho's Priest decided to come down to get involved. All the members of Blackpool Combat Club, etc. Santana Royal Tees, they all come down. Massive brawl to obviously remind you it's blood and guts on Wednesday. What a mad week this is. Man, mm-hmm. money in the bank's next Saturday. Yeah. Um, all kicks off there. Um, but in the end, the one who makes the save proper to Eddie Kingston, chagrin is one Claudio Castagnoli. And there were George Jack and a Mox who was sat <laughs> between them going, What are these two bloody like? Uh, <laughs> uh, to close out this show. Um, it, it was one of those where. When you see an attack happening, you know, you, your mind automatically goes to like, oh, a surprise, you know, appearance at the end of the pay-per-view. And, and, and AEW, of course, got a bit of history with that. So maybe it is going to be a punk, considering this is the interim AEW mm-hmm. World Championship, or, or, or maybe even someone preposterous like Kenny Omega. Yeah. That wasn't the case, but it was, it turned out into a, it turned into, I should say, a hell of a sell for this Wednesday's Dynamite. Yeah, it was it was a sell without being um, tacky. You know, wrestling does that thing. We, we joke about it sometimes, you know, the whole point of wrestling. And we get on the ride every time nonetheless, but it's like, uh, you are about to go on the greatest ride of all time. There is no better ride. We can't show you. It's behind this door. But the ride, when you <laughs> buy your ticket and you walk through that door, the ride is going to give you all the thrills, the spills, the drops, the twists, the turns. It is the greatest ride ever. And then you're on the ride, and the ride's going around really fast, and there's loads of cool twists and turns. And then somebody says, hey, you enjoying this ride? Behind that door is the greatest ride ever. You think this twist's good? You think that high drop's good? There's an even higher one. All you need to do is buy a ticket and walk through the door. Yeah. That's kind of wrestling's trick every single day of the week. So a lot of the time, it can feel a little bit annoying when you're at what is supposed to be the greatest ride, and they're saying, but tune in for tomorrow's ride. Yeah. This was that without you feeling a little bit robbed, a little bit hard done by. If anything, you got robbed and of the of the sweet moment between Tanahashi and Moxley. But Tanahashi getting briefly to sort of exist in the airspace of Blackpool Combat Club, somebody that I guess they would absolutely take him as an honorary member. Whilst you have as well little details like the um the Kingston Claudio fight and the mm. all their fussing and feuding while Moxley kind of shrugs and grins through his own crimson mask. What am I gonna do with these yeah. two? Um I don't think it was too condescending a sales pitch. I quite enjoyed the pull apart. Even they, they teed it up for a surprise until there wasn't one, and then the action was hot enough. And because they'd not given you the swing in the match, you were left with something. It wasn't just coming out to make the save. He was coming out to give you something that you'd not mm-hmm. experienced earlier. Cool hand, hand just took it like a champ as yeah, well. Yeah, it was great. Really good ending to the show. And uh, yeah, hell of a go... Go home segment. <laughs> Hell of a go home segment for the TV this week, yeah. which is of course Blood and Guts. We'll be previewing that proper on Wednesday as part of the AW Dynamite preview, uh, and we'll get Sid's thoughts at some point, no doubt, regarding this show too. But let us know your thoughts on Twitter at What Culture WWE. Uh, watch there, you can follow both of us. You can follow Michael Hamflit at Michael Hamflit. You can follow me at Adam Wilborn. Follow us all at What Culture WWE, as I said, uh, and make sure you subscribe to What Culture Wrestling wherever you get your podcasts from for daily wrestling podcasts, of course. Um, I believe it is Andy and Michael Sidgwick. Great to have Andy back, of course, from America. Um, talking about Monday Night Raw a little bit later on today, with, of course, John Cena returning for that mm. one. Uh, me and Hanford will be asleep. <laughs> uh, but yes, make sure you subscribe so you get that. And then we'll all be back, myself and the Dadly Boys, to review Monday Night Raw uh, tomorrow. But for now, this has been the review of Forbidden Door. My thanks to Michael Hanford. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you soon. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com code program.